you have a minute? Today on Pediatrics Now, we're talking about how to get the most out of the curbside consultation. Today, I'm here with Dr. Mary Ann Jackson, Dean and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Missouri, Kansas City School of Medicine, Division of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at Children's Mercy Hospital. She's the ninth dean and the first alumnus to serve as dean. Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for being here today in the podcast studio. Thank you, Holly, for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So you're one of 46 female deans in the United States? That is correct. There are 157 medical schools and 46 women lead those medical schools across the country. It's been my honor to serve in that capacity over the last five years, and it's been amazing, despite the fact that we had to navigate all the challenges of the pandemic. So has this been a dream of yours to be the dean of a prestigious medical school? So my path started in St. Louis as the oldest of five children and I went to UMKC School of Medicine. We're one of only three six-year combined accelerated BAMD programs in the country, and I was one of the first graduates of that program. I left there and went to Cincinnati Children's to do my pediatric residency, and then on to UT Southwestern to do my pediatric infectious disease fellowship. My research has always been in using antibiotics wisely and utilizing vaccine to get appropriate coverage to prevent vaccine-preventable infections in children. Along the way, I've been a division chief, I've been a program director, but I have to tell you, I didn't put on my agenda, someday I would like to be a dean. We actually had uh, a dean who left uh, very quickly for a new position, and they had to find a new dean from the inside while they were recruiting. And uh, I became the choice of the search committee there. And at the point that I was approached, I, I knew about five years earlier that I would consider such a role, but I wasn't pursuing it at that time. But when it came to me, I really thought, I think I have all the skill sets that will allow me to lead effectively. And I said yes. And once I started into the role, I found I was really able to make impactful changes that benefit students, other learners, our faculty. And once the pandemic hit and the chancellor asked if I would accept a permanent role, I said yes. Tell us a little bit about, I know you're so busy, but what do you like to do in your spare time in this high stress, um, high burnout world of medicine? <laughs> So I'm really strong in emphasizing passion, focus, and fit in whatever you do in life. And in terms of medicine, being respected and valued for who you are professionally and personally. So on a personal level, I am a daughter. Um, my mom is turning 94 years old this month. She still lives in our family home in St. Louis. She drives, she cooks, she crochets, she does crossword puzzles. Mm. She's what's termed a super ager, and that's what I hope to be someday. Me too. <laughs> that would be wonderful for all, for all of us. I, I, I think being able to be active and vital um, as we age is important. So, you know, for me, I'm a 
I'm a daughter. I'm a wife. My husband and I went to medical school together. We have two great children who married two wonderful uh, people, and we have four grandchildren. And so some of the things that I like to do outside of everything I do professionally, I loved garden, but I also started writing children's books when our oldest granddaughter, Poppy, was three years old. Wow. And so our, our books, the books I've written for her, started out about a rescue dog named Mare. And uh, Mare uh, got into a little trouble going grocery shopping one day. So that was the first book, and I think I'm up to book eight now. So where can we find these books? They are handwritten, hand-illustrated, and they are in Poppy's Possession in Scarsdale, New York. Uh, I think some, I promised myself that once I get to book 10, I would see about getting them actually published. So will you let me know, and then we can do a follow-up podcast on that? I would love that. Okay, sounds great. Do you have a quote you'd like to share with us today here on Pediatrics Now? We love quotes. I love quotes, too. And there are a number of them that I love, but I love this one from Steve Jobs a lot. And it is, you cannot connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. And you have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. I think that's really true. And I've lived my life really trusting my gut on most issues when I come to a decision point, And I reflect on these words when I think about that. And... Our gut can be so powerful to really trust in what we know and that feeling. And not only that, but really trying to leverage all of the opportunities that come our way and to ask ourselves what moves us forward, what makes us better, and what things will be fun. It's so important to thrive, right, to have fun. I think it's especially true as we're coming out of the pandemic, things were topsy-turvy for so very long. And the pressure on providers, on medical providers, including and especially pediatricians, has been really great to the point that many of our physicians are in distress. They're trying to get back to the normal, but it's hard. And in many cases, we are seeing physicians who are leaving our profession, especially women. And that's a high, high concern to me. And so that's something that I speak about on a regular basis. It's part of the uh, honor that I've had being here at the University of Texas San Antonio. And one of the best things was speaking to the Women in Medicine group today at noon. And that's something I was going to ask you about as dean of this medical school. What advice do you have in general, for our pediatric practitioner listeners. And having survived the pandemic and how difficult that was moving forward. So one of the most important things, I think, you know, physicians are high performers. They have a high-stress occupation. They are personally and professionally trying to connect the dots, as we talked about. And so what I would especially say is to give yourself grace. And what that means is step back, take a breath, and think about the things on your plate. And we talked about at the new conference the rule of five. If something's going to go away in five minutes, forget about it. Five hours, forget about it. Five days, 
can you control it? Is it under your control? Can you make a difference? Then you should. But most of the things will be in that five minute to five hour to five day path where really if it's weighing heavy on you, let it go. And if it's five months? If it's five months and it's important, then maybe you should take a step back and say, okay, what can I do to approach this? I mean, I would say that when it's five minutes, five hours, five days, I'm still asking myself, what can I do? Can I affect a change here that's going to fix this? But we're worrying is not going to fix it. And so the same thing would be true there. So for the important things where we can make a change and we can make an impact to do so, but for those things where you have no control and they're going to go away quickly, let it go. And that's such great advice. I know my grandmother worried a lot, and she would joke, but it must be working because everything I'm worrying about doesn't happen. <laughs> so that's the five-minute, five five-hour, five five-day rule. <laughs> Thank you. Well, let's dive into the curbside consultation. Most of our listeners know what that, that is, but just in case, let's go over what exactly that is in medicine. So I'll preface it by saying, One of the greatest opportunities I've had as a faculty member at Children's Mercy in my uh, four-decade career has been uh, integrating and intersecting with the pediatricians in practice. And so I held a role called the Vice Chair of Community Collaborations for a number of years there. And what it allowed me to do would be to highlight hot topics, current events, changes in medicine, things that pediatricians needed to know, Uh, to improve their practice. And one thing that was very consistent for all these years is that once the pediatricians knew their practitioners and their consultants within the children's hospital, that I would often get phone calls. And they would start with, do you have a minute? I want to run this patient by you. So all of our pediatricians in in the community uh, practice, they know what this is about. And I am of the belief that these are not only widespread highly collegial, but they're really excellent educational opportunities, and they really help define a working relationship between a specialist and our community colleagues. And what it allows us to do is optimize patient care. And so one of the things that I did over the course of a year, and this is back in the era before computers, uh, which dates me, of course, but I kept a little piece of paper every time I got a call from a pediatrician in the community. And I wrote what their question was, and then I created a theme for that question and what the answer was and whether or not there was an outcome that I could identify. And lo and behold, there were consistent themes. The community pediatrician called about cases where there was a question on testing or treatment or a vaccine reaction, a clinical case that produced a conundrum and they wanted guidance in how to approach that case. They often uh, called about exposures, a patient exposed to a certain disease and what they needed to do. Sometimes they called about a travel question and sometimes they called because they knew the patient needed to be referred to the children's hospital, but they wanted to know, what do I need to know before I send the patient to you? So this was done years ago. I think we published it in 1993. And as I reflect on this, it's the same themes. They are all thematically very consistent. So sometimes the diseases have changed, sometimes they have not. But the themes that patients uh, present with 
that community pediatricians call about are, have been quite consistent. And look, we were talking earlier, so most most practitioners have a list of phone numbers where you can call and get that specialist on the phone. Hey, I have this patient in the exam room. You're the expert on GI, that kind of thing. So absolutely, that curbside consultation. That's absolutely correct. And sometimes there's a patient right in the room that they're calling about. Sometimes it's, it's a trend uh, in cases that they've seen within the community. Sometimes it's a question that has arisen. And I'll give you a classic one. Occasionally, uh, through the years, I've gotten a call. And so strep throat is very, very common. And one of the comments that and questions that I've gotten from pediatricians is, is there something going on with group A strep? Is it resistant to penicillin now? And the answer is in the past and now, no, there are no penicillin-resistant group A strep strains. So then that leads you down the path of why do you believe that your patient could have a penicillin-resistant strep infection? And the answer is because I've treated them and they haven't responded. And so then we back up a little bit and say, what did the patient present with? Because we know that classical streptococcal pharyngitis occurs in children of school age who present with fever and sore throats, sometimes swollen lymph nodes, but not, never, with cough, running nose, draining eyes. And in those cases, the answer is do not test them. So occasionally, what seems to be and failure to respond is an incorrect diagnosis because a third of kids, up to a third, it's probably closer to 20% really, uh, carry strep in their throat. So if you test every child in second grade, you're going to come up with 20% who's carrying strep, hmm. but they don't have strep throat. Wow. And so if you treat a child with a cold, with amoxicillin, they still have a cold. And so sometimes we have to just work through information like that. Sometimes I get a call about a patient, and the question may be, I'm dealing with a patient that looks like they have mono, but the mono spot test was negative. What am I missing? And the answer is you're probably missing nothing. If this is a classic teenager with thick exudate on the tonsils and posterior cervical lymphadenopathy, and you've done a mono spot test and they're in their first week of their symptoms, Monospots are negative often in the first week or two. So sometimes it's just, yes, you have made the correct diagnosis. It's just that this test is not positive this early on in treatment. So these are classic examples of the kinds of questions that I might receive. And so what is your advice, Dr. Jackson, about how do we get the most out of that curbside consultation? So one of the key issues on getting the most out of curbside consultations is to make sure you have all of the information assembled. And I give you the example of a nine-year-old that we got a call about a few years ago. And the call was, I'm worried that this child may have Kawasaki disease. And I'm worried because they have fever and they have red eyes and a red rash and red lips. And the question was, what do I do with this child? Well, nine is kind of old for KD. It can happen, but it's kind of old. So tell me more about the patient. Um, what are they being seen? Are they otherwise healthy? Have they had any exposures? And the physician I was talking with mentioned the fact that, well, his partner had seen the child previously, and he was going to have to then go back and pull the record to get kind of fill in the blanks for the information. 
And so I said, okay, I'm, I'm on hold. Go ahead and get the chart and come back. And he came back to the phone and he goes, oh, my goodness. This child has been receiving trimethoprim sulfa, an antibiotic that's associated with serum sickness type reactions that can look like Kawasaki disease. Mm -hmm. And so the answer was, this is not likely KD. It is likely a drug hypersensitivity reaction. And the first thing we're going to do is stop that drug and then monitor the patient. And so sometimes having all the correct information assembled is going to be the key. And that's a classic example of a case where we were able to pull it together uh, very quickly, but sometimes that's not possible. So best information available to get the best answer from a reliable consult consultant who's accessing the best evidence, that's the way to get the best information to your patient. And as we know in pediatrics and in most specialties in medicine, time <laughs> can be tough where you have... 30 more patients to see, all the exam rooms are full, and you have a question. How do you know when you're getting enough information? So it's really interesting. In this day and age, I will tell you one thing that's different from the time frame where I collected all the data on a year's worth of curbside consultations. It is far more likely now where somebody's going to pick up their phone and they're going to text me. And the text will often pop up with a picture. And it will say, what is this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and in many cases, it's a skin finding, and we go back and forth. And so it can happen very quickly that way, where you can um, go back and forth with previously well on no medicines, no trauma, no exposures, no spider bites. Um, is it painful, not painful? Is the child able to ambulate if it's an extremity that's involved? And very quickly, we can um, come up with probably a most likely uh, differential diagnosis. And in the child who's otherwise healthy, they're not unstable. And what the pediatrician thinks is likely an infection. And um, the question would be, what is the correct antibiotic in this case? And so for skin and soft tissue infections, where we're thinking about staph and strep, cephalexin is still the drug of choice, but also to expand the differential a little bit. And the question might be for them, go back and ask the patient, was there a spider bite? Because in many case, cases, the child has been sleeping in the basement. They may have seen um, uh, spiders, and you might be able to identify an, another diagnosis. So sometimes we can do it quickly with texting back and forth. And certainly the closer I am with the pediatrician colleague that I know, uh, we can have a very quick open conversation about the patient because I'm confident I'm getting good information from them, and they're confident that I'm giving them good information back. And it's crucial that we know when it's that extended care that the general practitioner knows who he or she is talking to, knows them pretty well. Absolutely. So knowing your consultant is key, key, key. And most community pediatricians, I'm quite certain, have on their phone the phone numbers of the consultants that they know and they trust and that they're going to connect with. And so even as I've transitioned over into the dean's world uh, for the last five years, I still frequently will get calls from our community pediatricians. And in most of the cases, there are situations where uh, they believe they have the right diagnosis, they want validation of that, and they want to know what to do next. And we have a very good working relationship when it comes to that. Sometimes it's a patient where we uh, have a very nuanced 
situation. So I have a family where they found a bat in the room of a sleeping child overnight. And so bats are the common, most common vector for rabies in our country. It's not dogs. It's not cats. Other um, uh, mammals Mm -hmm. that are out there that may, foxes, skunks that may transmit uh, rabies, they just don't happen very often at all, but bats do. And so the nuanced question could be, I have a three-year-old, and we found a bat in the baby's room when they woke up from the nap. They got rabies vaccine two years ago for a similar type of exposure. Do I have to start rabies immune globulin plus a full rabies vaccine schedule again? And the answer is no. And so that sometimes it's a, a very nuanced question that has a very specific answer. So you don't have to repeat rig, and two doses are sufficient for prophylaxis in that particular case. In, in general cases, are there any red flags to know that you, you really need more information? You need to seek out more advice or wait or what, what is your advice there? Absolutely. So there are a number of different red flag conditions that I talked about earlier at Grand Rounds today. And one red flag condition that is very, very crucial for uh, pediatricians to recognize uh, has to do with group A streptococcal necrotizing fasciitis. It is easy to recognize if you know what you're looking for. If you miss the diagnosis, it rapidly progresses and it can be limb and life-threatening. So what are the features of necrotizing fasciitis that you need to know about? So I might get a call about a patient who has a painful limb. And the pediatrician may tell me, the child seems to be in horrendous pain, but I find nothing. They don't have any type of injury. I do not see swelling of any significance. I don't see redness. What am I missing? And the answer would be, are they sick or not sick? Well, they don't look well. What do their vital signs look like? Well, they're tachycardic. The heart rate is very fast. I'm like, okay, so you have two worrisome things here. You have a child who does not look well. You have a child who's tachycardic beyond what you'd expect just from pain. And you have pain that is out of proportion to what you're seeing on exam. You have a medical emergency right in front of you. This may well be group A streptococcal necrotizing fasciitis. It can be associated with toxic shock syndrome. Mm. That child needs to immediately get in for care. And the first thing we want to do is have the emergency physician and a surgeon examine the child. So sometimes they very much know that there's a child that needs something and needs it very quickly. And just by hearing the clinical presentation that they describe can alert us to what needs to happen next for the patient. That's great advice. In pediatrics, are we getting better at not overusing antibiotics? Overuse of antibiotics is a common problem. And I would say that we are getting better. I think most practitioners are using very specific algorithms in their practice to identify when and who to obtain streptococcal testing for strep throat and not using, not testing uh, children where it's not indicated and certainly not prescribing antibiotics. I think in the COVID pandemic era, we had more pediatricians who were looking at the patient very carefully and thinking, okay, this looks viral to me. And we had influenza testing, we had RSV testing, even though 
influenza and RSV seemed to disappear for a year before they came back again, those two common viruses. And we have COVID. And they were more likely to say to the parent, this does look like a, a viral infection. And antibiotics will not impact a virus and are not necessary. In other cases, as they're looking at a patient, say with um, what they think is middle ear infection, understanding that watchful waiting is also a strategy you could use. And so your child has a cold, they're on day four, um, they have fluid in their right ear, but they don't have fever, the eardrum isn't bulging, this may progress to a true acute otitis media. And in that case, if the child develops significant otalgia and or fever, we may need to treat at that point. And we're talking about generally the child who's two or older. Um, in other cases, we can watchfully wait. And in point of fact, many cases of otitis media self-resolve. Those that are due to Maraxella, 70 to 80% to 90% self-resolve. Those due to Haemophilus influenzae, non-typable, 70% self-resolve. Mm. It's the pneumococcal cases that do not resolve. In most cases of pneumococcal otitis media, that eardrum is bright red and bulging and painful, and you can identify those, and then you know how to treat those patients. The other way that I think pediatricians are getting better is understanding duration of therapy matters, how long you're exposed to an antibiotic matters. And so if you have middle ear infection, but you're six or older, you can treat those children for five to seven days. It's as effective as treating them for a longer period of time. Over six, five days, between two and five, seven days, under two, 10 days is still the recommendation, and understanding that amoxicillin is still the drug of choice to start with. And has the advice changed if the symptoms for the child are, get, are all better? To, for, should the parent or caregiver still be giving the antibiotic? Well, we strongly recommend finishing out a course of antibiotic once it's recommended. And so one of the things that I think we do have to identify is giving antibiotics is hard sometimes, especially to a toddler who really does not want to, um, to take an oral antibiotic. Even antibiotics like amoxicillin, which are reasonably tasty, uh, there are others like amoxicillin, clavulanate, augmentin. Many children despise the taste of that. So understanding for parents uh, the kind of the rules of giving the medicine on time for the entire course and you know, where pediatricians are much better than any kind of pe pediatric ID doctor is telling parents the tricks and strategies to get children to take those antibiotics. Any more advice that you'd like to share, Dr. Jackson, about the curbside consultation? So at the very beginning, I shared the Steve Jobs quote. And so most all of our pediatric providers in the community have a community, have a community within their practice, within their local area, within their region. And you are well-trained. Many are extremely experienced. For those who, who are less experienced, only been in practice for, say, two to five years, you have others you can count on. But trusting your gut is going to be important and understanding that you may have to access within your practice a consultant there. I recently had a case of a young baby 
who had chicken pox. And the pediatrician, fortunately, um, was very experienced uh, in her practice and said, I think this, called me and said, I think this is chicken pox, but mom had chicken pox as a child, so shouldn't this two-month-old still have maternal antibody? And the answer is yes, generally speaking. What age gestation was the baby born? 32 weeks. Well, if babies are born under 28 weeks, they don't have maternal antibody. So now you're in a little bit of a window case, and maybe at a couple months of age, the antibody is waning. And no other exposures to chicken pox? Well, lo and behold, the mom had shingles, hmm. which exposed the baby to chicken pox. The maternal antibody had waned already, and ding, 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 this pediatrician was spot on. So trusting your gut and then validating that with someone within your practice or someone um, that you trust who's one of your specialists. What inspired you to go into pediatric ID? When I was a medical student, I trained at Children's Mercy Hospital. And at that time, childhood cancer was I won't say uniformly fatal, but we cured very few cases. And I was impressed that uh, what many of these children died of were infections complicating their cancer. And I actually didn't think I had the capacity to cure cancer as a medical student, but I thought I, I think I could be on the path to changing the outcome for the infections that complicate cancers. So when I went to Cincinnati Children's, um, I continued on this that path, and at the time that I was a resident there, they did not have any ID faculty. It was that was kind of unusual across the United States, mm -hmm. and they have a huge, huge children's hospital. And I became kind of the de novo guru of pediatric infectious diseases there, and had the honor of meeting Dr. George McCracken and Dr. John Nelson from UT Southwestern, who came as visiting professors. And so I was inspired by them. They became my mentors. Um, I uh, am still so honored to have been trained by them, as was Dr. Barton, who's on staff here in pediatric ID here at UT San Antonio. Yes. So it was uh, the inspiration of the patient. It was the ability to maybe change the outcome and then having wonderful mentors uh, that launched me on my career. And before we go, what are you the most hopeful about with in regards to infectious disease? And what are you the most worried about when we look, look to the future? Medical trends are changing. And one of the things that I think is going to impact many practitioners not only pediatricians, but certainly adult providers, are some of the changes that are coming in the future. So the number of patients that we'll encounter that have more than one chronic disease is going to exponentially rise uh, in the coming years. For those individuals out there who care for children and adults, the number of adults you're going to treat over the age of 80 in the coming years is going to triple. Mm -hmm. And so it, there is going to be a complexity of patients um, that we're going to be seeing. And there's no doubt that we're going to be faced with new viruses, new bacteria, resistant bacteria uh, that are going to challenge us. But I'm highly, highly confident 
that the progress we've made in curing childhood infections, in treating them, in preventing them in the last hundred years will continue um, for the future. So I'm very optimistic. What am I afraid of? I'm afraid that the anti-vaccine sentiment will, which has really been amplified by the COVID pandemic, is not going away. And one of the things that I think pediatricians should know, and this is it's really interesting information to me, if you look on social media, there is a lot of misinformation and a lot of anti-vax sentiment there. What pediatricians should know is that 60% of social media content comes from Russian bots. It is not even real people Mm. who are putting this information out on social media, and they have no intention necessarily to be pro or against vaccines, but to just stir up controversy. Mm. So learning where misinformation is and how to dispel this misinformation is going to be something that is going to be increasingly important for physicians, and it's tough. And so I just hold my breath for the next four to five years to see if the playing field levels, because right now we know that during the pandemic, many people didn't get vaccines for their children, especially MMR vaccines. And we are ripe for a measles outbreak in the United States, more than one in multiple different communities. So those are the things that uh, concern me. Uh, On the other hand, I have just this strongest optimism and confidence about the people who are caring for children and for the overwhelming capacity for parents to really try to understand and do the best for their child. Dr. Marianne Jackson, thank you so much for being here today. It's an honor. It's great being here with you on Pediatrics Now. Thank you so much, and thanks, San Antonio, for allowing me to be here.